Any questions left? <laughs> this is a question that I know is out of curiosity. <laughs> I'm asking it in honor of Hanukkah. And also <laughs> as a sequel to a question that's been asked of times about the similarity between Christianity and Buddhism. Um, last May when I went to my very first retreat, and some thought about myself as being this body. And, um, I also, followed, following the tradition of my mother, would often wonder who's Jewish and often know without being told. And I noticed that Jamie and Stephen were both Jewish. And so all through the summer, as I went to more retreats and got to know more Dharma teachers, I kept being struck by the fact <laughs> That there were many Jew, Jewish Dharma teachers. <laughs> and uh, so I heard that heard that many was Jewish. <laughs> appreciate the joy of suffering. <laughs> it's going to be the title to our next book. <laughs> Companion to you know what. <laughs> about as insightful as I can be about it. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> um, Given that it's high for my thought today went back, I'm much serious, more serious now. Um, to, you know, World War II and Hitler and all of that. And, and I think it's I'm still confusing to me, you know, how does someone like Hitler, how would he stopped? You know, and, and if someone were to kill him, what's the karma of that person if they were killing him not out of hatred, but in order to save millions of lives? Obviously, I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is important to remember that it's possible to act and to respond to situations. In fact, it's necessary to do so. 
and that our responsibility is to see the mind space in ourselves out of which it's coming from. So it's, it's in that sense pretty simple, although it takes a great deal of awareness and sensitivity to really see what's going on in our minds, you know, and what's motivating it. Well, I, I don't know exactly whether it would be actually possible to kill without some degree of aversion in the mind. It might be mixed up with other motives as well. And possibly not. That's, that's really something I don't know. Um, and the karma would simply reflect the mind state or combination of mind states involved. You know, so if, the, if there was a lot of hatred then the karmic result would um, be appropriate to that. If it was a little bit of hatred or fear or aversion mixed with other motives, so then the karma would be mixed. The law of karma is very, as it's taught, seems to be very precise. Like each mind moment, dependent on the factors involved, brings about a result dependent upon those factors which is why it takes a tremendous uh, attentiveness to be watchful in ourselves. What's motivating our actions? It's so easy, as I'm sure you're aware of, it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that what we do not only conditions the present moment, but it also conditions future results. It's like when we drop a stone in a, in a pond, to somehow think that we can drop the stone without the ripples occurring it is not a very accurate perception of what happens. Because there's always that rippling effect right? from our actions, it becomes very important to see the direction or the consequences. Not so much in terms of specifically what's going to be returned, but whether it's, whether we're planting wholesome seeds or unwholesome seeds, you know, doing actions which lead to greater happiness or actions which bring about more suffering. probably not the best one to talk about that since my experience uh, ordaining and being a monk was very limited. I did it for a very short time, just a couple of years ago, uh, for six weeks only. Um, and most of my practice was done just as a lay person. Perhaps during integration week, the people who ordain now and some of the people here who ordain for longer periods and really live the monk's life it would, I think it would be an interesting group 
um, both monks and nuns. You know, it would be an interesting group to, for them to have a chance to, to share with you um, what that's about. And I think you'd get a, a, get a much more in-depth sense from them rather than from me. Uh, statement from Dogen, I think, better not to begin, if you begin, better to finish. Does that mean it's better to be just sort of a happy slob? (laughs) (laughs) My own sense of that, and again, for the authoritative version, you would have to ask the author. My own sense of that, as, I, as I've heard it, is really a comment on the arduousness of the journey. You know, that, that what we're undertaking is nothing less than turning around the conditioning which has kept samsara going from beginningless time. So it's, if you think you've had a few difficult sittings, (laughs) I mean, it's a tremendous undertaking, tremendous undertaking that we're doing. And it didn't begin, you know, it didn't begin for any of us during this retreat or your first retreat or the first time you sat. I mean, we're, we're in process. And all of us have <coughs> developed an enormous amount of parame. Have we talked about the word parame? Just that sense of accumulated, accumulated force, forces of purity in the mind. People do not come to this point of commitment to practice without a long, 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 deep development of parami. You know, it's not... I know in the middle of practice, you know, when you're in the middle of watching all the mind stuff, it seems as if one has never done anything in terms of training the mind. And it's, that's just kind of a, a misperception because of being in the middle of it right now. Um, it, it's a fantastically deep transformation that we're involved in. You know, the, the transformation of letting go of grasping, letting go of clinging, when that's the energy which fuels the world. It fuels our being. It's why we're here. We're here because of that fundamental grasping and desire in the mind. And what we're doing is trying to see and take a look at the ignorance which perpetuates that. And it's very deep. Um, So I think it's important really to take joy in the amount of work that we've all done, which enables us to be at this level of commitment to practice, because it's quite extraordinary. It's very rare to find beings in the world who have this kind of commitment.
of practice. Who is the I that um, see we are not being mindful or we are being mindful? Which in us is taming the mind? Okay, it's not that there's someone who is training the mind, because that then just reinforces the sense of some self or I to whom the mind belongs. And that would be a, a mistaken view. Rather than that, the teaching is the understanding that the practice of certain qualities of mind lead to freedom. It's not that these qualities belong to anybody, but rather within the mind there is this combination of qualities or factors. Some of these factors cause suffering and contraction and tightness, and some of these factors lead to opening and compassion and wisdom. So what's happening is the practicing of certain factors. But it's not that there's anyone behind that, or behind those qualities, who, who owns them, or who they belong to. Like a, a presence. presence. Inside of me that I don't know what it is when I am in, 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 in meditation many right. times outside. Right. And I don't know what it is. I feel something very strong. Can you describe accurately what that presence is? It's like when we do meta meditation and we see ourselves. You what? We see ourselves in front of us. It's exactly like that. It's like a, a part, not a part. The whole of me is there in front of me. And I am seeing it, and at the same time, I, I am the one who is seeing it. And I don't know what to see. Okay. Often when the attention is complete and sensitive, We, we have a sense of our experience that is we have a full we have a sense of fullness of our experience and the mind is not wandering at that time but what happens with or what can happen with that sense of fullness as for example when you described in the metta a tendency of mind is to create out of that sense of fullness or presence, as you describe, 
the tendency of mind is to create out of that feeling of fullness or presence an impression or an image or a picture of self, of being. So what we have to do, and that's that sense of self-image, right? the, imi- the image of that presence, what we have to do at that time is to come back in a very accurate way, in a very precise way, to see what the components are. Just as an example which I've used before, as a reminder, you look up at the stars and you see the constellation Big Dipper. There's stars in a certain pattern and we give a name to that pattern and then we relate to the name. We relate to the pattern. In the same way, there's a sense of presence and we create or we relate to a pattern, which I call Joseph. That's a concept in the mind. That's something extra the mind is adding to the actual experience. And in the same way that we can learn to be seeing Big Dipper and then look to the actual experience of what it is, which are just stars, those separate stars in a certain relationship, in the same way we can look to that experience of presence, if you look more carefully, you'll see that it's made up of certain things. It's made up of sensations which are constantly changing, it's made up of sounds, it's made up of certain attitudes in the mind, all different changing elements. And instead of being attached to the pattern that those elements are forming, that pattern of self, we begin to see past the pattern into just the fundamental level of changing, of changing elements. You know, it's... What do you see? On one level we see a bell. On another level, we see a certain color. If we had electron microscope eyes, there'd be no bell, there'd be no color. There would just be fundamental energy. The whole solidity of this would dissolve. That's the, that's the training of mind. Pre- that sense of presence is like perceiving the bell, the wholeness of it. And on that level, it's true. It's not, to, it's not to deny this level. But we get attached to this, and then we don't see the fundamental insubstantiality of the deeper levels. On Saturday or Sunday, I'm going to be giving a talk on compassion. Um, 
Maybe leave it till then. I have another question about karma. Um, <clears throat> if humans accumulate karma through conscious, intentional acts, like how do less complex beings, you know, like insects or even amoebas, accumulate karma? What would cause them to be go to a higher state other than being squashed by a bias? <laughs> I guess I can only answer the second part from what I've been told. <laughs> Which is one of the reasons that it's very difficult for a being once they've taken rebirth in a lower realm to again take a human or higher rebirth is because there doesn't seem, apparently, there doesn't seem to be that space in the mind which allows some discriminating reflection of what's skillful and what's unskillful. <laughs> Therefore, the, the possibility of taking a higher rebirth is really depends on what's called the random karma at the time of death right, from, some, from some past, from some past rebirth, you know, where we've all been everything, we've all done everything, and so even amoebas or insects or whatever, in their evolution and devolution, might have accumulated wholesome, both wholesome and unwholesome karma. If at the time of death, it just so happens that a wholesome karma happens to manifest, so then it will take a, a higher rebirth according to the text, and again, I'm just passing this information on, um, that's very rare. So try not to become an amoeba. <laughs> <laughs> when when Ninja um, chants in Pali, will he keep, whenever he's, I've heard him speak Pali, he's chanting and singing, and I was wondering if the Pali can be, can be spoken, it can be chanted, it can be chanted in many different ways. But it also can be spoken as a spoken language. So does it have tones? I don't believe so. Often mentions people who've experienced Dhamma in 17 days and two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to uh, live up to that. <laughs> um, Giving it up at this point. But I was wondering how common that type of uh, early enlightenment is, and if you could talk a little about your own practice. 
it's rare <laughs> to, to have that, that level of parame where in just a very few days the mind opens to that, to that depth. As far as I know, um, all of us have histories of great struggle, long, <laughs> long great struggle, continuing. did it somewhat differently. My own practice was in periods of three to six months at a time of intensive practice um, with a few months of doing other things and then again a period of three to six months over a period of, of quite a few years doing it that way. I don't know whether this will be encouragement or discouragement or whatever, but in the beginning of my practice, it was hopeless. <laughs> I just sat there and my mind wandered the whole time. I, I would be sitting, it was like total wandering. <laughs> And it took a very long time. I wandered a lot for a long time until slowly, you know, it began to uh, settle down. Um. <laughs> you know, I, I can attest to the possibility that you can go from a totally wandering mind to a moderately wandering mind <laughs> in 18 years. As the retreat is going on, my energy and power tends to decrease that your energy and what? And power. Instead of increasing, it seems to have decreased. And now I'm really running out of steam. <laughs> Seriously. And I think really mainly it's because I'm indulging more and more in thought. And I don't know if this is entirely the result of my own volition, my own choice, or if it's just because it's the first time I've ever done this, and it's just getting a bit tiring. <laughs> Two, two comments about it. One is that uh, people do have different rhythms, you know, and there does come a time, and it's different lengths of time for different people, uh, where, where one runs out of steam in intensive practice. Because it is quite intensive, and it's, it's really making a full-on effort 
you know, for sustained periods of time. Uh, and depending on the background and the, the development of the concentration and the attention, in our experience, anyway, it's, it definitely seems that there's a time when it's good to relax the intensity right, for, some, for some time. Uh, and so I think that's quite natural, you know, that, that you might be feeling that. Um, one of the things you can do as a way of kind of bringing the retreat to completion is about eight or nine more f- full, full days of practice. Um, especially toward the end, there is a tendency for the mind to start generating more thought. You can make thought... To watch thought itself is extremely fascinating. So instead of battling with the thought, and necessarily trying to you know, hold on to the breath or, or stay with some other object, if there's a lot of thought, sit back and just watch or look at or investigate the nature of thought itself. I found this one of the most interesting parts of the practice. Because here is this phenomenon which so dominates our lives. We are led about in our lives by, by the thoughts in the mind. It's like we have this leash around our necks and we're being walked by our thoughts. It's quite embarrassing sometimes. <laughs> you know. And yet, very rarely do we really stop and take the time to say, okay, what, what is this phenomenon? And this doesn't mean analyzing the content of the thoughts. Right, and getting into why certain thoughts come or not. It's not that kind of analysis. Rather, it's just looking where are the thoughts? I mean, we tend to assume that they're between our ears. But is that where they really are? And just to, you're sitting and this thought comes. What is that? What's going on? And that kind of looking and investigation brings a lot of attention, a lot of interest, and a lot of insight. So if there's a lot of thought happening, rather than struggle with it, it's really a chance to, to look and understand what this phenomenon is that plays such a crucial role in our lives. I've read that when um, Mokokusayadaw died and his body was cremated, his bones uh, turned into white spherical globules and his eyeballs remained intact. And that, that um, apparently made people decide that he was not hot. In that way. <laughs> is, that the, is that the sign? I had assumed that it was the absence of greed, hatred, and delusion (laughs) that really revealed that status.
And there are lots of stories about these guys. <laughs> Don't know. Uh, to make a comparison to a fish in water, when I see the worm hanging on the hook, and I experience greed and hope for it, but when I see the hook, I experience aversion and I stop. But like the fish in water, I feel like the delusion in my life is the water. And I've never been outside of this experience of I. And, and I don't really see it so clearly in sitting. What I could say is, oh, there's all this delusion. And I suspect there's many levels of delusion. Can you speak? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I think you are underestimating the amount of time in which you're experiencing things selflessly. Uh, it may not fit your image of what that experience is. In other words, sometimes we have images of, you know, when there's no self or no ego present, kind of this cosmic explosion into, you know, illuminated wisdom or something. It's much more basic and simple than that. And many times during the day, for example, right now, Can you feel just if you put your hands together and you're with the sensation of that and you're just with the sensation closely with the sensation, the pressure, the warmth, the tingling. Is pressure Steve? Tingling, Steve? No. And when we're just with the experience, there is just what there is, which is pressure and tingling. Right. And so many times in the day, when we're, when we're closely with our experience, we are actually experiencing selflessness. Because selflessness is... Selflessness is the natural state. Self is what's created as a concept. Self is what's extra. Self is what's build, built upon experience. So whenever we're just settled back into the flow of experience, that is the manifestation of selflessness. What I would suggest that you do to get a clear sense of the difference would be, in these last days, keep a, keep a strong lookout for when the sense of self appears strong in your experience. You're going through the day and you're just going along you know, with, with the sensations or the sounds or the breath, and then all of a sudden something happens and you become aware you know, that Steve is present, or that 
Joseph is present or whoever, kind of sharpen your radar for that sense of strong self. And at that time, then investigate what is being identified with that is creating that sense of self. And so you, you begin to see very clearly how we build it in certain moments when we identify strongly with a particular aspect of experience. For an example, and just a, a little clue, very often there's a strong sense of self, of I, when we get lost in planning. You know, we, we imagine ourselves in these scenarios doing all this kind of stuff with all kinds of you know, excitement or fear or joy, whatever. And there's that real sense of, of me here. Even if you're not aware as the mind slips into the planning, if you're on the lookout for that sense of selfness, when you begin feeling that, then you can see how it's the identification with those particular thoughts which has created it. Now, and it'll be very illuminating as you go through the day to see the different, the different things that you identify with which creates the self. Are those thoughts just conditioned things? Another way of asking that would be, why do I have my memories and not your memories? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, actually, whose thoughts they are. Yes, that's, that's the question. <laughs> Maybe I'm having yours. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are, there seem to be, right? um, and again, the language gets a little tricky here, there seem to be individual or particular streams of consciousness arising and passing. And within that stream of consciousness arising and passing, those are the conditioning factors for that stream. But it's a little more complicated than that, since all the streams are interdependent. Uh, But there seems to be some sense of some sense on some level of singularity. That doesn't mean that any particular stream of arising and passing, it's it's not to solidify that into a sense of it belonging to somebody. What we are is a changing stream, is a flowing stream. close to a point which is a common misconception which Manindraji has clarified for our group, and he only mentioned it in passing in his discourse the other night, that an experience of oneness or universal consciousness is just six jhana, sphere of infinite consciousness, and has nothing to do with vipassana. And I wonder if you could clarify that, because many people think they're trying to get into a oneness experience because they're raised as theists, and it's a wrong view. Manindra's been very clear on that with us. Um, 
there are, there are two ways of coming to a sense of oneness. And they're two quite different ways and different experiences. One is the way which Wanasara just mentioned, of expanding the mind to include everything. And there's a realm of samadhi, of, of jhana practice, it's called infinite consciousness. And one just expands consciousness to include everything. And so there's that sense of oneness, that one is the whole universe. That's what you could call a big self. Very big. Right? Which is why that state in itself does not uproot the sense of I, or the sense of ego, or the sense of self. It's just identification with a lot more, right? like everything. <laughs> but there's another way to come to oneness, which is really the, fru- the fruition of vipassana. And that's by becoming nothing. If we become nothing, There's a sense of separation, there's a sense of duality when we're here, when there's a sense of I separated from everything else. When we are no longer identified with anything, when we become nothing, then what's left is everything. But that's different then the expansion of mind and infinite consciousness, which is identified with everything. Did you see the difference of that? It's a, it's, a, it's a totally different state of mind. One is by becoming zero, then there's a oneness of everything that's left, of everything that is, because there's no separation, there's no duality, there's no one left to be separate. That oneness is simply phenomena as it is. Where is the knowing? Where is it now? On the first one, you said, uh, okay, a, a self identification, like you might be sitting there in the mountains and you have a sense of, I am that mountain and I am that cloud, and mm-hmm. a sort of not exactly identification, more of like a, as you might perceive, I am this body, as you might be living in that feeling, right. that same uh, sense of self extending right. around you, right. and then, and there's a sense of like, kind of knowing it, usually when that, well I can't say usually, but this, from, a, from, a, from a personal experience, when, when you grabbed onto that, you're suddenly back in your body. Mm. 
Okay, the difference, the difference is whether there's any identification with the knowing or not. And in this becoming zero, we let go totally of any identification with, with the knowing. So the knowing is simply another aspect of experience. The knowing does not belong to anyone. We no longer claim the knowing. And so there's not a sense of someone knowing it all. There's sit and walk. (laughs) I I mean, it's very interesting, but it it tends to get a little out there. The big mind meditation is a way of creating the balance of mind to go beyond the mind. And this is it's something I, I wanted to mention because it can be misleading um, in doing that meditation. It, it's, it can be, you know, at times, a very effective way of letting go of the identification with, you know, the small, confined self. It's as if the mind becomes the space in which everything is happening. And sometimes people get the idea that that's the space to strive for, that that's what we're after, that big mind space. And it's not. Rather, it's, it's a means to attain or to come to a balance of mind, where the mind, there's no movement. The mind becomes that stillness in which phenomena is arising and passing away. And it's out of that balance or stillness that the possibility of opening to what's beyond that uh, arises. concentrate on mind and matter or on impermanence, but not really at the same time. They seem to be kind of, if I'm doing one, then I'm not doing the other one. At different times, the mindfulness is focused on different aspects or different facets of experience. Uh, and as you say, sometimes it's the, it's the insight into the knowing an object. Sometimes it's the mindfulness is very keyed to the impermanence of phenomena. Within the impermanence, sometimes it's very keyed to the arising. Sometimes it's very keyed to the, to the dissolving aspect. Sometimes it's very keyed to the dukkha, to the suffering. You know, when you're in your practice, when you're just going through real suffering, it's hard to sit, it's hard to walk, it's hard to be with anything, people tend to think that the practice has fallen apart. And it's not that. It's really an opening insight into dukkha, into the unsatisfactory nature of things. But generally, we don't like to include that in our idea of what the practice is. Because we have this idea that it should all be nice and light and blissful, and that if it's not, we're not doing it right, which is incorrect. And so what you say is accurate, I think, that at different times 
the mindfulness sees reality from different angles. Could you say something about perception in the mind? I've heard that one of the five aggregates is, is perception. One aggregate is consciousness, which is simply knowing. Knowing a sight, knowing a sound, you know, a sensation. The aggregate of perception is that factor of mind which recognizes it. Right? And so there's memory involved in that factor. So, for example, we hear this. And we know that it's not a cow. That's so refined it, perception. <laughs> so is it the factor that's actually adding the concept? <laughs> the concepts come out of that factor. No, because, um, and again, I'm not sure, you know, in, in detail how all of these factors uh, work out. Um, I'll just put this out tentatively. You know, and, and you could kind of pursue it with Manindra if you like. But it would be like seeing this and recognizing the color without necessarily thinking it. Right? In other words, it, seem, it seems that it's possible to recognize something at a stage before actual word formation. So that's, that's the perception also. Yeah. yeah. So it's in that sense that it's fine as a mental factor. It just has that function of recognition. <laughs> the sense of I comes out of the five aggregates, is that right? The sense of I... No, it comes out only when there's wrong view in the mind, which identifies with something, that identifying function. And so when there's a thought, the sense in the mind, or the attitude of mind, my thought, or there's a sensation, right? And that attitude of mine, or when there's hearing, that sense I'm hearing. But that my and I are extra to the experience. The experience is just what it is. But very often, when we're not attentive, this other process jumps in that claims it, right? that claims it as mine. And in that moment, the self is created. I guess I'm misremembering, because I thought I remember hearing it, that somehow the five aggregates together have some kind of interplay, but it must be that I well, the five aggregates are called the five aggregates of grasping. But it's, it's not that the aggregates are grasping. It's that there's the grasping of the aggregates. That's what we grasp at. We grasp at, at the sensations. We grasp at feelings. We grasp at perceptions. And so, stop grasping. <laughs> <laughs> Theory of most aggressiveness, which you were talking about the other night, there's a, a generalized field of consciousness, which I suppose you could kind of call a, a common mind. Um, now, when we talk about mind, 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 are we talking about anything to do with that, or is what I think of as mind, mind, dist
I don't know. And I have the feeling that it's both. But Maybe an example, and again, I put this out very tentatively. If there's a stream of water and a vortex in the stream, you know, a little whirlpool in the stream, from one way of looking, you could see that little whirlpool as having a distinct unity. Right? different than the water on either side of it. Like this, it has, it has a uniqueness to it. And on another level of looking, it's the same water. It's not differentiated. So maybe it's something like that. Have you been storing up all these questions for three months? <laughs> Question about uh, children, which I think is sort of with me throughout the entire retreat. All of us here are adults, and <laughs> 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 right. Not only do we come in with it, it's why we come in. (laughs) Is there a way to, or is there a place to begin this process so that it's a part of growing up, so that you don't have to wait till you're 15 or 20 or 40 or 70 and then have to turn around, not only this lifetime plus untold other lifetimes? I think to the extent that we learn from our environment, right, and that's certainly a big part of our learning, to the extent that the environment reflects attentiveness and caring and non-greed and non-hatred, to that part of the mind which is accumulating through learning might pick that up. You know, so I think that, that the best we can do is the clearer we become, that will that clarity and that un, that level of clarity and understanding will inevitably touch the people that it comes into contact with. And to the extent that a person's mind is conditioned by what it comes into contact with, it will have a positive effect. Uh, May I offer to parents that there is a book in the library there on meditation with children that brings it to a very simple and very pragmatic level. Good. And 
whatever who is interested, yeah. it might be well worth pursuing. Yeah. Wait till the ninth to read it. But Five aggregates of clean were called that because they were the links in the chain of dependent origination that directly conditioned grasping, directly conditioned uh, craving. And I thought that what he just said was that the five aggregates are what the mind grasps for. Uh, so is my understanding incorrect? I, I don't see the two are the same. Well, um, if the five aggregates were what conditioned grasping, then how could we ever become free? In other words, the Buddha, after his enlightenment, the five aggregates were still in play. Right? There was still the body and perception and feeling and sankara and, and consciousness. But the, the purification through wisdom eliminated the grasping at them. And so they were still functioning, but there was no, there was no holding on, there was no identification with them. Um, that's how I understand it. If there's ignorance, in the absence of wisdom, right. under conditions of delusion, right, right, right. Okay, so that's right. So, yeah. Yeah. you just suggested that grasping is outside the five aggregates. No, uh, grasping is one of the yeah. one of the five aggregates, as is wisdom, and it depends which of those factors is is functioning. I just thought that the the aggregates grasp themselves if they're dumb. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to be how it is. <laughs> okay, maybe one last question. Yeah. I need some help. Uh, it's so hard for me. I like to listen to every sound outside, but I can't listen to just the sound, the still stare of an angry bird or a bird or a cow or whatever. How can you stop that? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Instead of trying to stop it, rather, maybe to let it happen. In other words, we hear a sound, and immediately the mind thinks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.